0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgi-burlington.org. Over the last year or so, we've been learning more and more about what it means to be a witness. What it means to take the message of the gospel to others in our circle of influence. What it means to tell our story to those who are interested in hearing it. One thing that's prevented, always prevented me from doing this when I was younger, and not so younger, was a fear that I didn't know enough to properly answer questions from those that I would encounter. Fear that I would embarrass God and my church in not being able to, once we got a conversation going, being able to answer a question. So I chose instead to, say, to stay quiet and say nothing. I know some of you feel that way because we've had these conversations before. That we're not, I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough about, about the Bible. So I fear getting in there and talk, opening up a conversation because I'm going to be timid because I might get asked a question and I'm not going to know. And then they won't even want to come to church because what kind of church teaches their people and I'm not good enough to even answer a question. I know how you feel because I felt that way. Let's turn to where the scripture reading was in Matthew 4 to begin. Because I'd like to address that fear today. And we're going to do so by going to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 23. Just to set the, the stage and the context, recall that John the Baptist was paving the way Christ came on the scene because John was preparing the way for him. John talked about this new baptism of fire with the Holy Spirit that would do more than just forgive sin, but would provide the Holy Spirit. Christ is then taken fast and is taken into the wilderness to be tempted. And then he comes down and begins his ministry. We picked that up in verse 23. Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought him to all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. This is an interesting passage here because it describes the beginnings of Christ's ministry. Here we see three specific actions being described. He heals people, both physically and mentally and emotional healing, draws a crowd, preaches the gospel of the kingdom, and then teaches in synagogues. So the healing not only helped people, But we are told that it gave Christ an avenue from which to gain a following. Because great multitudes, we see that in verse 25, great multitudes followed him because of that healing. So who was this man? So he he performs the miracle of healing, draws a crowd, and then we see that as we, if you take time to proceed through the Sermon on the Mount. And the multitudes followed him up into the mountain to be taught. He had preached the gospel of the kingdom, and then he separated himself, walked away, multitudes followed, and he taught them. But Matthew here is very specific that he both taught and preached. He taught and preached. In discussing these words, some of the feedback that I've received was, well, we, we preach from the pulpit. We preach from up here, and we teach In smaller groups, we teach in our youth class. We teach in our Bible studies. So we kind of preach from up here, and then we teach in perhaps a Bible study format, a small group format, um, whether it be maybe in writing or what have you. But is that what the writer was trying to convey to us when he said that Christ both preached and taught? Or could we simply sometimes impose our current usage of terms back upon our studies of the word so we we uh, i've been in congregations where i'm told preach to me brother preach to me am i preaching from up here or is that a word we've imposed we've taken in from its current usage and are we really preaching from up here and what does preaching and teaching have to do with with what we're supposed to do as god's people more importantly, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter if we preach from up here or teach from up here. What does it mean? So what I'd like to do is do a word study here on the concepts of preaching and teaching. What did these words mean to Christ? What did they mean to the writers of the New Testament Scriptures? And more importantly, does a proper understanding of their meanings and use help us in our personal walk with God and as part of this family as we reach toward our vision and mission as a congregation? So let's jump into some definitions here in Matthew four, verse twenty three. And we'll just before we do there, we'll read it again. Verse twenty three. And Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So we're going to leave healing aside. We'll get to the use of gifts later. We're really going to focus on teaching and preaching. The word teaching here, and those of you who most of us have electronic means to, to check on this, is the Greek word didasco. The Greek word didasco. In Strong's, it's 1321 of the Greek Concordance. And it means to hold discourse with others in order to instruct them to impart instruction or to instill doctrine into someone. So to hold discourse, to, to instruct, to impart instruction, or to instill doctrine. That's what Christ meant when he used the word teaching. It is used 97 times in the New Testament and is translated in the King James or the authorized version as either teaching or taught. That's the only way it's ever, it's ever in the King James version or the New King James, it's the only way it's ever translated is teaching or taught. The word for preaching is the Greek word cariso. Cariso, it's 2473 in Strong's, and it means to herald, to proclaim or publish, especially of divine truth. It is used 61 times in the New Testament scriptures, and it is translated in our version as either preach, publish, or proclaim. So initially, we're already starting to see the difference. We are proclaiming something or we are instilling teaching, instilling instruction, instilling doctrine. So we can see immediately, just from the breaking down of the the Greek words, that these are two fundamentally different concepts. Teaching, or holding discourse for the purposes of instruction, or instilling doctrine, or proclaiming something. Note, here where Matthew talks about that Christ taught in their places of worship. But he preached in other places. That's not always true. We're going to see some examples here. Let's go to Luke chapter 4 and see some examples. We're going to look into some examples first where these words are used to get a feeling again to back up the, the, the definitions that we looked at and see how Christ used them, what the writers of the scriptures meant by them. So we get a feeling that there really is a difference between teaching and preaching. So we're going to Luke chapter four. then verse we're going to begin in Luke chapter four, verse sixteen. So he Christ, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. So here, initially here, he simply takes the opportunity to read from the scroll of Isaiah to those who were present. And all eyes, it continues in verse 20, the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but none of them was Elijah sent, but to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the Prophet, and none of them was cleansed, except Naaman the Syrian. So all who were in the synagogue when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff, then passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. Now initially we see here, he read from the scriptures, and then he took time to explain them to them. Rather than just have a rabbi read, he closed it down, waited for all eyes to affix on him, and then he explained its meaning. How it how his life, how his presence here on this earth applied to the scripture, that he that this was a prophecy that was in part being fulfilled in, in, in their eyes, so it helped explain his ministry and he took time to teach them and instruct them in this way. In this case it it gained their wrath that's that's not the point, but what he did here is he took time to teach them to read from the scriptures and then explain things. If we continue, then he went down to Gal- to Capernaum at the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbaths, so again teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So in part, of his, part of his opportunity in the Sabbath was to teach, and here he brings some more teaching here through this, this healing of the unclean spirits. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, but Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made a request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. And when the sun was setting, all those who had, who, who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out, crying and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, and he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. So much like we read in Matthew 4, we see healing, healing from, uh, physically here, healing of of, uh, mental and emotional healing from unclean spirits. We see teaching by opening up the scriptures and then explaining them. Then, verse 42, Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him. So now he's not in the synagogue. He's not in someone's home. He's just out in public, and a crowd sought him out and followed him. And came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the kingdom of God the other cities also, because this, for this purpose, I have been sent, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. So initially he's teaching, but now he's talking about this kingdom of God, and we use the word preaching. So we're going to start to notice what we teach about and what we preach about and how their specific words are being used here. Let's dig in a little bit into this word for teaching Didasco. We're going to look at a few examples of how they are used. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So right now we're talking about this word, which has to do with instructing, imparting instruction, and instilling doctrine. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 9. But as it is written... Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is who is from God, or which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, which the Holy Spirit imparts, that the Holy Spirit instructs us. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So here, as Paul is trying to, again, we, we know the history of the Corinthian church, we know the issues they were going through. Here, Paul is talking to them of the need to dig deeper into God's word, to search out the deep things of God. And that it requires a discerning spirit and a discerning heart and one who wants to dig deep into the scriptures and to compare spiritual things with spiritual. And here we're, is we're starting to get an idea here of where this teaching is involved. That it's not just a superfluous, super, superfluous use of Christ is king, uh, the, the kingdom of God is coming. That, that's important. But when we talk about teaching, this is talking about deep things, peeling the layers of the onion apart and digging deeper, much like we heard today in the Bible study. An iron sharpens iron of sorts, where we're actually digging deep into Scripture and, 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 and looking into these deep things of God. Let's go to Galatians 6. So we see how Christ taught in the synagogues by reading from Scripture and then explaining it. Paul then talks here about digging deep into the deep things of God and having the spiritual explain having the spirit explain these spiritual things and comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And yet, for time's sake we're going to just dive into sometimes into some of this. We're going to look at one verse here, verse six, "Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches." So it's incumbent upon those who teach to teach good things. So there's some responsibility that we're going to start seeing developed here for those who teach. That we can teach bad things, but God's instruction is to let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. So we need to, to we're adding a little, bit to the, a little bit of color here to some of this. It's incumbent upon those who teach to teach good things. We go back to Deuteronomy eleven, Deuteronomy eleven. We see instructions to parents to teach. And again, as we read this, consider. What we've already talked about with this, the meaning of the Greek word, which is to instruct, impart instruction, to instill doctrine, talking about the deep things of God. Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. And again, keeping in mind the context here, this is the second generation of Israelites that are about to enter the promised land, and Moses is giving the law to them again before he is, dies on the other side of the Jordan. Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart verse 18 of Deuteronomy 11 and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall teach them to your children speaking of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way when you lie down and when you rise up and when you write them and you shall write them on your, the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens of the earth. So we consider teaching here, this is depth, and this is consistent teaching. This is always imparting God's way, in this case, to your family. So there's a place here for teaching within the family setting. And when we do so, it is almost a constant teaching. It is almost, an when we read this, it's as you as he says here, when, you, when you're sitting in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you wake up, wherever there's an opportunity, in this case as a parent, you're looking for an opportunity to teach God's ways, to instill God's ways into your children so that your children and their children and every successive generation after that will have the truth of God. So again, we're starting to see this instruction piece come to life here. And this is made more evident in Nehemiah. Let's go to Nehemiah. We read a lot of Nehemiah last summer leading up to the feast. But there's an interesting portion here, Nehemiah chapter 8. This is that time in Israel's history when they were being reread the law, Ezra is teaching them this law again, beginning on the Feast of Trumpets that we heard about in the Bible study on the first day of the seventh month. And Ezra reads the law to Israel. They, verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and then all the people answered Amen and Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they they are gathered together on this holy day, the Feast of Trumpets, learning again of God's not only His law, but included in His law, His system of worship. About to learn about the Feast of Tabernacles, which we read about last year, as you further on in chapter eight. And they heard this law of God just being read to them, so just being proclaimed to them, and they've started to worship God because what they heard started to make started to gel with them, and also. Yeshua, Bani, Sherabiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Horijah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So even back in Ezra's time, Ezra read from the law as the priest, but there were, almost a breakout of small groups where these, these folks here were tasked with taking the people and helping to explain it to them. It's not just enough to hear the word the law of God read, but you had to understand it. And you did so in small groups. So they broke out in groups of, I didn't count how many are there, but we can imagine they broke out into small groups. And these folks were tasked with helping them understand what they heard because it was important not to just hear, but to understand and this was done after Ezra proclaimed the law to them, and it required a follow-up by teachers. Numerous places, we, we said this was used 97 times, this word, in the New Testament. We don't have time to go to all those places. Let's move on to preaching. In doing so, let's go to Matthew 24. So we sort of got the concept of what was meant by this word teaching, and why it's defined as instilling, instilling doctrine, instilling instruction, imparting doctrine, Digging down into these deep things of God, what about preaching? What about this word, cariso? Matthew twenty-four, verse fourteen. And again, cutting into some of the context here, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So this this word preached is this word cariso. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, as this word means. Cariso means to proclaim or to preach in all of the world. So here we see both a prophecy and a commission. So this is a promise from God that before the the end of the world comes, it will be preached in all the world. It's also part of the commission to the church. that what Part of what we need to do is to preach this gospel of the kingdom, to proclaim this gospel of the kingdom. Move forward to chapter 26, Matthew 26. Now, when we read Matthew 4, we saw how Christ used this gift of healing to draw a crowd, to draw their attention to him. Let's pick it up in verse 6, Matthew 26 and verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. But me you do not have with you always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So Christ used the gift of healing to draw an attention to him. Here, she used her gift of service. She served her Lord by pouring upon upon him this fragrant oil. And as Christ is saying here, Wherever the gospel is preached in this whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. We begin the process of preaching by using our gifts to get people's attention. Much like this this woman here, she had the gift of service. She was not worried about, about whatever finances that she was going to waste on this fragrant oil. She saw her Lord and Master and wanted, while he was there, to serve him. She did so with the means of service. They mean the gift that she had, which was the gift of service. And in doing so, she was was able to, in Christ's words here, help proclaim this gospel as it is preached around the world. Serving others leads to opportunity to proclaim this good news, to help explain why you serve in the unconventional way that you do. All the disciples saw was that she was wasting all this this fragrant oil. Christ said, She's, "She recognizes me. She knows who I am. She knows I am her master, her and her Lord and Savior, and she is, in part, helping to proclaim this good news." Remember, we we sometimes get tossed around by how we use words. She was proclaiming that Jesus Christ was Lord by using this 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 fragrant oil on him. That is. Starting the process of preaching the gospel. The disciples at this point didn't get it. Why is she wasting her money here? She was showing them that she was serving her Lord and Master and that she recognized that he was the Messiah. Luke 16. Luke 16. Verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. And since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. So Christ came, John was there to pave the way for the Messiah to come and begin the process of preaching the kingdom of God. That is what is at the heart and core of what it means to proclaim, of what we are here to proclaim. It is the reason for preaching. And as we work through this concept of preaching, think of it as proclaiming, as the word is, 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 uh, is defined by Strong's. And it'll help. It'll help. Differentiate how we've come to use the word versus how Christ really intended it when he started using it himself. Let's go to Luke 24. Luke 24. And we'll see that this message of the kingdom of God, from a proclaiming standpoint, also includes other concepts. So if we are to proclaim this good news that there is a world beyond this world. That there is something to live for, to be a part of, past this life, which we heard again about in the Bible study. A reason to be, to commit today in this life to this way of life. We'll see that this, what we are to proclaim goes, as we start to peel the layers of the onion back, there are other concepts that we proclaim. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So again, we're starting to see Christ and his message being at the center of what was intended in the Old Testament, the Law of the Prophets, the Psalms representing the writings, all pointed to him, to Christ. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So again, a little bit of teaching here, talking about this, 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 under, this concept of understanding and comprehending the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the, from the dead the third day, and that repentance and the remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. He opened their minds with understanding so that they could understand the scriptures. He taught them doctrine. He imparted to them wisdom and instruction and taught them so that they could then understand this and go and proclaim the gospel to the world as he promised would be done. As he started and as we will finish in his name. So again, now we're starting to see a reason for the teaching. reason for the teaching isn't necessarily just to improve our our spiritual IQs, but it is to impart to us the ability to now go proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And repentance and remission of sins are part of this kingdom of God message. It is part and parcel of the the message of all the holy days and how those holy days all align with showing us the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 3. Let's go back to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter three, and again cutting into the context a little bit here. This is Peter and John after the Feast of Pentecost. We'll pick it up in verse seventeen. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your, as did as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Therefore, based on the the initial fulfillment of prophecy, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken of By the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So, Peter and John here are continuing in Christ's example of proclaiming the basics of the gospel message to an unconverted crowd. Here, he he calls them unconverted by saying, You did all this in ignorance. They, They don't have a deep concept of what they're in here. So, he starts with proclaiming this message of repentance and the belief that Christ died and rose again and that there's this kingdom. The whole reason for all of this is this kingdom that God has in preparation for us. So we see here Paul and Peter and John proclaiming the basics of the gospel to this unconverted crowd, talking about repentance and conversion, forgiveness of sins, this new world to come, at times of refreshing, as he as he uses here, and of Christ Himself. Let's now go to Galatians one. Galatians one. There's a second Greek word that is used for preaching, and much like in the English language, we have several words that we can use for any number of concepts. So there is the second word that is used here in Galatians chapter 1. It is the word "euangelizo." Euangelizo. I'm definitely saying it wrong. Euangelizo. But from this we get the word evangelize. And it's 2097 in the Strong's Concordance. But it's important that we look at this that even though it is another Greek word, a completely different Greek word, the concept of preaching doesn't change. Much like in our English language, we could use any number of words to convey an understanding. Different words can still convey, convey the same message, because it is the message that is important. Galatians 1, verse 21. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. So again, this word, euajalizo, means to announce the good news and to declare glad tidings. So again, when we talk about this word preach, it is talking about announcing and proclaiming the good news of God, which here is represented by the word faith, but we know that this faith is in in the faith of Christ, in his death and resurrection, and the fact that we can repent and receive remission for our sins and become part of this kingdom of God. So it doesn't change the scriptural intent. So now that we've seen teaching and preaching and how teaching imparts doctrine, and, in, and teaches and instructs people in the ways of God. And now preaching is really a higher level proclaiming of the good news. Let's dig a little bit deeper into this topic of teaching. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Paul here, beginning in verse 3, begins to talk about spiritual gifts. We're going to drop down and begin in verse 6. Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. What we see here is that teaching is a gift. The ability to teach is a gift. Nowhere in scripture that I could find, and you can correct me if, you, if there is a place, is, prophet, is preaching a gift. Because preaching is simply proclaiming the good news. We can all stand on a soapbox. And proclaim good news. But teaching, the ability to instruct, the ability to impart teaching, the ability to impart doctrine, is a gift. Let's go to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. We see here presented to us the qualifications for bishops, overseers, and deacons. When you compare the qualifications, they are very similar. Here we see verse one there is if this is a faithful saying if a man desires the position of a bishop, he must he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober minded, of good behavior, hospitable. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. And then the parenthesis, not a novice, continuing verse 6, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among all those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. When you compare those, to that of the deacon, they're eerily similar, except for able to teach or apt to teach. That is a requirement of a bishop that is beyond that of the qualifications of a deacon. And again, this ability to teach is this a form of this same word that we talked about, Didasco, And it is the Greek word 1317, not 1321, but a form of the word the didacticos. Again, very similar to the characteristics of a deacon, but teaching in the office of a bishop was a requirement. Preaching is nowhere mentioned as a qualification, but teaching is because it involves care for the flock. This doesn't mean that others can't teach. Deacons have taught and do so today, and so do others. Let's go to Second Timothy chapter 1. But a requirement, it is a gift, it is also a requirement of a bishop or an overseer. So there's something to be said here about the importance of being able to teach and how important that is. And how nowhere are we seeing preaching is a gift, a requirement. Anybody can stand up on a soapbox and proclaim their faith. That that's is a bare minimum expectation of us. And we're seeing the difference here between preaching and teaching. But others can teach as well. Second Timothy 1. Cutting into, for time's sake, let's just cut into the, the, the sentence at verse 5. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, is in you also. So Timothy here, and we're going to, as we read there, let's go quickly to chapter 4. That he brings into, into remembrance to Timothy all that his mother and his grandmother taught him. That he has this, this base knowledge because of what his mother and grandmother taught him. We see that again. I think that might be First Timothy 4. three. Let's go to 1 Timothy Second Timothy three, sorry. i have to change that of my notes, I apologize. Second Timothy three verse fourteen. But you must continue with the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy learned and became a valuable uh, uh, protege of Paul's being a valuable leader in the church because all that his mother and grandmother taught him as he was a boy. So teaching is important. We, see, we saw it back in Deuteronomy, the importance of, of the family teaching and continuing to teach for us so that generations do not lose this knowledge of God. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. So Timothy was taught by his mother and grandmother. Ephesians 6 and verse 4 tells us it's a different word, but again, much like those that different word for preaching, it is the same connotation. Verse 4, And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. So Timothy was taught by his mother and grandmother because they were the ones that knew the scriptures and knew the truth. Here, Paul is encouraging and and. Exhorting fathers to to lead the teaching in the home. To bring up children in the training and admonition of the Lord. Acts 2. Ephesians 6 verse 4 was the last one. Acts 2, Acts two, verse 41. How do we determine who has? Because when we read Timothy, it said when bishops are selected, they have to have the ability to teach. So the ability to teach comes ahead of selection into being a bishop. So there must be some evidence already of them having the ability to teach. You don't select and make somebody a bishop and then hope, hope, I hope he has the ability to teach. There has to be some evidence for that to be, for him to have, meet those qualifications. And we see Timothy was taught by his mother and grandmother. Fathers are taught to begin the teaching process in the home. Here, we see a way to develop this ability to teach. Because as we heard in the Bible study, we are going to need to be able to teach people in that 100-year period. To help, to help keep the, the, the influence of Satan away from those people for that hundred years. So that when it comes to opening up the book of life, hopefully some people that we have taught and kept at people at bay, their names will be written in that book. So we need to, in this day and age, train not necessarily to teach here, but to be able to teach when it comes time to teach. As we heard about in the Bible study, Acts 2 verse 41. And those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3000 souls were added to them and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers so we see them coming together and and digging through the bible and hearing what was being taught and and amongst their fellowship digging through the scriptures and as we re- recall back to what we read In 2 Corinthians, these deep things separating the spiritual from the spiritual and having the spiritual explain the spiritual and digging into these deep things of God. From there, let's go right over to Acts 17 and look at the Bereans. Acts 17 and verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. But we see here that as a group they got together and searched the scriptures. And dug into what they heard, and as a group they they peeled a, peeled back the onion and dug into those deep things, so that they could continue searching the scriptures and, and believing. To me, that is that is one way to find out who has the ability to teach, and and oftentimes we're focused on teaching here. We need to be focused on the ability to teach and training, so we are able to teach. In the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, and in that that post-millennial time that we heard in the Bible study, where there are that hundred years, where we will be helping Christ and helping helping keep Satan at bay, as Satan is is roaming around, as we heard in the Bible study, and taking his last swath through mankind to take down who he can, it will be coming upon us to be able to teach and help in that regard. So as much as We need to teach today. We also all need to be able to train so that we're able to do that when the time counts at that time. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We teach within the confines of the congregation. I wasn't here last week, but we had a ladies' Bible study where there was some teaching going on amongst the ladies that was appropriate for the ladies. We see that here, talked about here, as, as, as qualities of a sound church. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for doctrine, verse 1 of types 2, that the, over, the older men be sober and reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and in patience, "...the older women likewise, that they not be reverent, in behave, that they be reverent in behavior and not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, to be chaste, to be homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity." In reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, the one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say to you. So the ability to teach is very important. But with it comes extreme responsibility. And that's the difference between teaching and preaching. We must preach the right things. We must must all be able to get up on our soapbox, so to speak, and proclaim the good news. But if we take on the task of teaching, we must do so with reverence, and we must do so with the, the impact that this has, that this is, a, this is a responsibility when we take this on. Even when we take it on in the confines of our own home, in the confines of, of women teaching women, the confines of, of men teaching young men, we take confines of, of the congregation here from the pulpit, it is, that is why it is a gift. And that is why it is a responsibility and, a, and a, a, a difference maker between a bishop and a deacon that one must have the ability to teach. And, this, and we see all these examples of others who are required to teach, fathers to teach in their homes, the women to guide the young women into the, into the proper way of life, men to guide the young men, because it is so important, as we read in Deuteronomy, that generation after generation does not lose their, their touch with, with the truth of God. James chapter 3, we see these responsibility of teaching. Because sometimes, all gifts, as we know from Ephesians, are important. Sometimes people strive for gifts that have a little more limelight know that this gift of teaching comes a huge responsibility and one that is is one that God holds very very accountable here and we see that in James chapter 3 my brethren verse 1 let not many of you let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment for we all stumble in many things if anyone does not stumble in word he is a perfect man also to bridle the whole body indeed we put bits in horse's mouths that they may obey us and we turn their whole body look also at ships although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things see how a great forest see how great a forest a little fire kindles and the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity the tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. When we have the responsibility to teach, whether it's from here, whether it's amongst a group of ladies, a group of young men, in the home, wherever that is, we need to take that that task very seriously. Because God instructs us here that it is a huge, huge, huge responsibility. And this word masters that is used is again the same form of this word didaskos, and it is a form of this a form of the word 1320. So again, a form of that word didaskolos. This master really means teachers, those who impart instruction, and there is greater responsibility upon those who teach. Not just from here, the youth studies, the within the home, within a, a group of young women, within a group of young men. When we're down at a Lexington, and someone has a responsibility to. Uh, he's given the responsibility of giving a, a presentation when we're at the feast. Anywhere that we, t- we have the opportunity to teach, it is a gift, and take it seriously, but understand the responsibility that comes with this. The same responsibility does not come with preaching, because everyone is expected to preach. Everyone, because all preaching is, is proclaiming the good news. Let's go to Luke 17, and see that responsibility again, Put forward, Luke 17 and verse 1. And then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. And it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. And this word offend has to do with putting stumbling blocks in their way. So if we find ourselves in the position of being asked to teach a group of any kind, understand it comes with weighty responsibility, that we must be true to his word, that we must not overstep and put stumbling blocks in the way of those that we are given an opportunity to teach. But from this, when we break down and see this being taught about how to teach, me taught how to preach, we can see the differences here. We're going to start to tie this here in here in a little bit. Let's just take a quick aside in 1 Corinthians 14 and look at this word prophesy. And this is going to be a very quick aside. We've covered it before, but it's important that we look at it again. Because, again, we sometimes take these words and impose our current usage onto the biblical usage. And when we look at prophesying, we think of foretelling events and being like Nostradamus and getting, gaining great fame or, or predicting when Christ will come back or predicting who the two witnesses will be. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 1, we need to understand at the same time what the gift of prophecy is. Pursue love, verse 1, and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And it does have to do with foretelling that it does means to foretell events, to speak under inspiration, and to declare a thing that can only be known through divine inspiration. So there is, that doesn't change, but it's the purpose behind prophecy that, that helps teach us what it really is. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him, however, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So if, if you are given the gift of prophecy... It is not to make yourself look good, is to glorify God, and it's to, to the, the people you are, you are prophesying to, to exhort them, to edify them, and to comfort them towards getting right with God, as we've been talking about through the book of Revelation. And all that that prophesy really means, that prophecy really points to, is to get the church right before God. To, as we heard today, understand that we, want to, we need to be part of the first resurrection. That is, the, that is the message of prophecy, that we want to be part of this first resurrection. We want to be part of the first fruits. Not to bring glory to oneself. So what does this have to do with us? We're going to wind this down real quick here. What does this have to do with us about preaching and teaching? Let's go to 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3. We've talked about this before. But this verse is one of the verses that causes us fear and causes us trepidation. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer everything that is thrown at me. This causes fear. So if I'm going to put my neck out there, this says, I've got to be ready to give an answer. Remember what we talked about when we went through that sermon on context and what this scripture really refers to. This has nothing to do with being able to answer everybody's question. This has to do with when you are asked, Will you put your foot, do you stand up for Christ? Will you, do you, will you save your life now in return for denying Christ? That we are ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us. You don't need to be a teacher to fulfill this. You need to be a preacher. You need to be a proclaimer. I proclaim my love for Christ. I proclaim my love for the kingdom of God. I proclaim my commitment to him. That's all you need to know. You do not need to have your masters in theology to be able to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. And we see that in our final example in Acts 16. We just need to be a proclaimer of the good news that you have built your faith upon and just tell your story, as we heard Pastor Ramakan tell us weeks ago. Acts 16 here. Now we see the, the lead up here, Paul and Silas are now on their mission you can read verses 16 through 24 to get a re- to get a feel for the reason why Paul and Silas were thrown in prison it's an interesting read but in verse 25 at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God so they were falsely charged they are thrown in prison and they are not there trying to get the the, the jailer to read his bible open your bible let's talk doctrine they're praying And they are singing hymns to their God so that they are giving an answer for the hope that lies within them. That they can be anywhere and that will not change their glorifying God. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, falling asleep on the job, seeing the prison doors open, supposed that the prisoners had fled and drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm. We are still here, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So he has their example that his bosses threw them into prison. And that wasn't going to change them. They were happy to continue to praise their God. And when the jail doors opened, something clicked for him. They weren't answering all his questions about the Hebrew scriptures. They simply were proclaiming their faith in God and maintaining their, their glorification of God. What must I do to have what you have? Why are you so calm and accepting while you are in prison? I want that. Save me. Show me what I need to do to have that. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. And when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Now here we see Paul and Silas were in a position to expound on God's word. But they had the gift of teaching. So they were in a position to be able to do that. If that's not your gift, you still praise and proclaim God. But what if you were asked to dig into the Bible after your example of proclaiming the gospel in whatever way that you did and you caught the attention of an unlearned soul? So you're doing whatever it is that you do and someone sees that they want what you have. So they ask you a question. It's a question you can't answer. You know, I'm still learning too. I don't have that answer for you. All I can do is tell you why I believe. And why I'm assured of my faith. But I know people that do. Why don't you come out and come to the church that I go to. And there's lots of people there that might be able to give you the answer. Come and learn with me. I'm not ashamed to say I don't have all the answers. Because I'm learning like you are. And you know what? I can pick you up. I'll drive you in. Don't be afraid to not have all the answers. Because what you need to know, you already know. That Christ died for you that your sins are forgiven, that he died and rose again, and that his plan of salvation will take place. That is all you need to know, because on that rock, your faith is built. This is where our role-playing exercises could come in, fellowshipping together, helping each other find ways to handle these situations. We don't need to be a biblical scholar to preach. We need to be able to herald, proclaim, and publish the good news in whatever way you can do. We don't need to be afraid of our inability to properly handle any question that is thrown at us. We need to understand the difference between preaching and teaching. We are equipped to boldly do what we are supposed to do and serve where we are gifted. Remember, part of those gifts are what draws people to that proclamation. Without, Without giving them a reason to want to listen, which is what your gifts do. In Christ's case, it was healing. In the case of that lady, it was her serving Christ. Serving them with our gifts gives them a reason to want to listen to what you have to say. But you don't need to have all the answers. You just need to guide them to God. If someone asks you a question that you can't answer, don't fret. Invite them along. You will hear this and a lot more questions answered from the pages of your Bible. Every time you hear the word preach, think, proclaim. It's a better fit. It's a better way for us to understand, minus all the trappings of of our society has inflicted upon this word preach, it really means to proclaim. And everybody has the responsibility to proclaim their good news when they have an opportunity. So every time you hear the word preach, think proclaim. Rather than imposing today's language back onto the Bible, we impose the Bible's language onto our actions. Part of being a safe place is knowing where you can come and get true teaching. We also need to learn how to teach because we are preparing to help Christ as first fruits in his plan of salvation as we so boldly heard about earlier today. And finally, using your gifts not just healing and not just relieving people of their demonic possession but using our gifts to help others outside the faith will present us with an opportunity to share our story, to proclaim God's goodness to those whose attention we now have. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.